0: Church family, if you would take your copy of God's Word and find the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'd like to continue our focus this morning that we've been so beautifully led into on a subject that I find quite intimidating. I know it may be hard for you to believe that I could be intimidated, but uh, I find the subject of the love of God very intimidating because. When you study and study to preach and to communicate, you want to have a grasp on the concepts and the truths that you are attempting to share with your people. It is a high honor that you would extend to me the privilege of sharing the next few moments with your life. You were not forced to be here this morning. You're not forced to tune in online. You're choosing to do so, and you're doing that. Means a great stewardship is in play. You are extending your ear and your heart to hear from the Lord. The Lord has heard from us. We have declared beautifully, sermonically, worshipfully, how much we love Him, how grateful we are for His love. But now we must hear from the Lord about his love for us. Now, if you were to ask me or any of you in this room to list all the ways and the reasons you love the Lord, well, we could spend the rest of the day. We probably could spend the rest of the week talking about the reasons we love the Lord. We always start with the gospel and his redemption in our lives, but then very quickly we move on to all the other ways He has blessed and encouraged and upheld. Has God loved you? Let the church say amen. Let the church say amen. God has loved us, but if you ask me to come up with the reasons why He should love me, I struggle. I know what my Bible teaches me. I know that the Bible teaches me that He created us for His glory. God was not lonely in eternity past, for God is both unity and community. He exists as one in the perfect union of three, Father, Son, and Spirit. God was not wringing His hands, Before he created the heavens and the earth, wanting companionship, he has it all in himself. He is not like you and I. He is fully sufficient in and of himself. All joy comes from the Lord. All knowledge exists in God. All power is under his control. So God did not create because he felt unloved. He created so that he might display his unending love on his creation. And when we come today to 1 Corinthians 13, I hope and pray that you not only walk away with a greater understanding of what love is, but that you are also enamored by how limitless the subject can be in our lives. I cannot, I'm confessing to you, I cannot fully capture the love of God in this chapter. I cannot capture the love of God in this sermon. But I believe that if you will allow your heart to be open, you will leave here encouraged by the greatness of the love of God and the potential of that love not only in your life and to your life, but through your life. If you're a guest of ours, we're in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're in a sermon series called Church Matters. It's a point in the book where Paul begins to deal with matters in the church. Church matters. And because church matters, the matters of the church that we care about matter to God. I've been saying it this way. It matters to the Lord how we handle the matters that arise within our faith family. If it matters to him... It should matter to us. We've been on subjects like the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts. In a few weeks, we'll go back into the discussion of spiritual gifts, specifically the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. But right in the middle of this section of 1 Corinthians, Paul, in writing this first letter to the Corinthian church that we have in the Scripture, gives us the most beautiful chapter in all the New Testament over the love of God. In fact, Most of you are most familiar with 1 Corinthians 13 out of wedding celebrations. It is a wonderful passage that is often read, celebrated, preached, commemorated at weddings. And that's a good thing because a wedding is a display of the love of God and the love of God shown between one man and one woman. We know that weddings should be worship services. And so it's not a bad thing to talk about 1 Corinthians 13 in the context of marital love but it sure does limit it if we leave it there. It's so much bigger than that. And as we think about this passage, I want to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's right, not 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'd like to read to you the very last sentence of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, and I will show you, A still more excellent way. A still more excellent way. Paul's setting them up. He's saying we've been dealing with tongues and prophecy and spiritual gifts. And we've talked about spiritual knowledge and wisdom and the way you function as a church. But let me fly a little higher, Paul would say. And let me talk about something that far exceeds what you and I tend to focus on. Let's talk about something that Paul would describe as the most excellent way. Now, the subject of the love of God permeates the Word of God. When God was forming his people, what did he tell Israel to do? You remember what he says to Israel in the Old Testament? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one— So he makes a statement about God being one. We know that God is a founder of the faith, that there is one God. We are monotheistic, meaning one God. So he establishes this with Israel. And this is important in the ancient world because the ancient world was wrought with polytheistic faiths. That's many gods. All you have to do is study antiquity, and you'll find that every culture had its own set of religious rules and gods and concepts of gods, and their gods are not really attractive. They look more like personified humans, which is exactly what they were. So after he makes this statement, he says in verse 5, Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall love the Lord your God. I think this is interesting. Does God speak about obedience? Sure. Does he speak about honor? Yes. Yes. Should we honor God? Should we obey God? Should we follow God? Yeah. Should we submit to God? Sure. Should we pay homage and reverence to God? Yes. Should we respect God so much so that we respect his name, that we don't take his name in vain? Absolutely. But what is all of that built on? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, they put Jesus in a corner because Jesus is a threat to their understanding, twisted understanding of the law, and Jesus is walking around ministering, and they said, okay, rabbi, what is the most important of all God's commands for our lives? You remember it well. It's called the great commandment for a reason. It's found in Matthew. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then Jesus said, this is the great and first commandment. Jesus was quoting his Bible. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now I think it's important to recognize that the world has never been more complex, yet honoring the Lord's never been simpler. There is no point in my life, where if I love God above all things and love my neighbor and myself, I will stray from his will. It's just impossible. In fact, the root of my disobedience is in temporary moments where I start loving me and stop loving God. Self-love is the root of sin built in pride. And so we know that the Scriptures teach us as a people That if this transformative love of God is so earth-shaking to our existence, it should change the way we love each other. Which is why Jesus said of his disciples in the book of John, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So I really can't overemphasize the importance of you and I appreciating, aspiring to, and emulating the love of God in our lives. Now, I'm not the first person to say this to you. Before you walked in the door this morning, if someone had asked you, do you believe Christians should love one another? Every one of you would say, well, sure. Do you believe Christians should love the Lord God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, depending on the translation, with all their might? Absolutely, you would say. And yet, why would Paul, in the midst of this book called 1 Corinthians, pause between chapter 12 and chapter 14 and say, I need to make sure and remind you about love. Well, I think it's pretty obvious. I can know something and forget to do it. I can be fully aware of a definition, but not live out the transformation. And so we come today to this subject of the most more excellent way a more excellent way I'm going to preach it in two weeks this week we'll go down through verse 8 or 7 and then next week we'll go all the way to verse 13 but it's so rich I'd like to read it in its entirety to you out of respect and reverence for the word of God if you have a printed copy of God's word I'd like for you to look with me if you're using a device that's fine as well bring your printed copy next week you'll get extra credit if you love me, you would. But in verse 1, <laughs> First Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and, I, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. It's just impossible to read that passage and not have your heart warmed over the subject. But I want to caution you about something. We are absolutely influenced by the world around us. We're influenced by the influences that we see, sense, hear, experience every day. You and I live in a world that has pushed love into the corner of sentimentalism or sensuality. This is how love exists in our culture. Either it is something I'm sentimental about, like the way I feel about my children as they run to me when I take them up in my arms or the way I feel toward the object of my romantic attention, maybe my attraction to my wife, the sensual love, the sexual love that God has given us. Our world has basically said this is where love should live, so much so that our world runs into the end of its definition of love all of its time. If you're a child of the 80s, you remember Tina Turner asking, what's love got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be? I see some of you that sprayed a lot of hair in your hairspray in your bangs. (laughs) Yet, fascinating, in this entire chapter of love, there's nothing about sentimentalism, there's nothing about sensuality, there's nothing about sexuality. Because the love of God is so much bigger than the level of the feeling of the moment. The love of God is something so much deeper than an emotion. The love of God should produce emotion. It's a good thing to have a tear roll down the cheek of a person as they worship. It's a good thing to allow God's word to cause your heart to beat fast as pastor is preaching. It's a good thing to raise your hand and awe and gratitude for what God is doing, or to bow the knee in submission. Emotions, those guttural responses to experiencing the Lord are not a bad thing at all. But our love, the love of Christ, the love of God, the love that we believe this faith is built on, has to be something far deeper and far more eternal and far more unchanging than the whims of our emotions than the current state of our mind or our well-being. And so this should be refreshing to you if you've run out of emotion. Some of you came in Today, in a spiritual dry season, it's chapters like this that help you see that even in your feelings of being distant from God, even in your feelings of not being warmed toward God, even in your empty worship that you feel like you're going through the motions, there's something deeper to aspire for. There's something more for you to look to. And so if Paul does anything, he both celebrates and defines the love of God and in the first seven chapters he gives it to us in this way this most excellent way can be looked at I would say first by the necessity of love why must we have love well look at verse 1 look what he says if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels now why would he mention tongues first Because the gift of tongues has been the most divisive thing in Corinth. I know that because he's going to give all of chapter 14 to sorting out the mess that tongues or a misinterpretation of tongues had created in the church. And so he starts by saying... You're running around worried about how certain people are speaking in worship or how you should speak in worship with the tongue of man or a tongue of an angel. And Paul says, listen, you can do all the speaking you want in recognizable or irrecognizable utterances. But if you don't have the love of God, you're nothing but a noise. That's what he says. If I speak in tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, not to pick on the gift of tongues, he goes right into prophecy. He'll make the argument in chapter 14 that prophecy is the greater gift because prophecy leads to clarity. Clarity leads to conviction. Conviction leads to changed lives. People know what to do. And so he talks of great respect for the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, the gift of explanation and exhortation, and the gift of worship. He speaks about those in chapter 14. But what he says here is, You can be as clear as a bell. You can be able to explain the hardest parts of the Bible. But if you have not love, it doesn't make any difference which is why he goes on to say in verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, remember the Corinthians were fascinated with greater mystery and knowledge. If I have all these things, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains in antiquity, that was something that was associated with faith. The idea of faith to move mountains comes up again and again in Scripture. And so Paul says, I can even have great faith. But if I have not love, what does he say? Look at the end of verse 2. But I have not love, I am nothing. He ends this in verse 3. If I give away all that I have, can you imagine watching someone give away all that they have? And even their own life. I deliver my own life up to be burned. But have not love, I gain nothing. This is important. Paul says, verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul says, you can be very religious. You can do things that religious people celebrate. You can do things that look unselfish. You can do things that bless other people and still miss the love of God. Haven't you in your life found yourself doing Christian things absent of the love of God? Have you come across people who knew their Bible but struggled to love their neighbor? Have you ever met someone that loved to debate the finer theological disagreements on the end times and yet never lifted a finger for the poor? I've known people who were proud of their church attendance and eat up with racism. I've seen people who were deeply devoted to their holiness But look down on lost people for acting lost. When we begin to evaluate our lives, we have to ask a question. Does my worship, does my obedience, does the way in which I live my life, does it always connect back to love? Church, you know I've told you this for years. Obedience is a love thing. If we don't get to the motive of love, you will obey the Lord inconsistently. But when it is about love, you will find consistency in your obedience. I mean, think about it. An example I've often used is a real simple one. I have a marriage certificate somewhere, I think. We received from the state of Alabama a marriage license. There are laws on the books of South Carolina around our marriage. I also have in that same safe birth certificates, six of them, birth certificates. And those birth certificates carry with them responsibilities because there's a listed mother and a listed father, and that in and of itself has legal ramifications. And there are laws on the books of South Carolina about what is legal or illegal to do to, with, or for a spouse or a child. Do you know that in my life as a husband and a father, I have never gone back and looked up those documents to remind me what to do. Why? Because your marriage license, the birth certificate that is issued to you at the hospital before you bring the child home, that they're merely legal pieces of paper that are needed for procedures. It is your love that causes you to feed that child. It is your love that keeps you true and loyal to your spouse and your spouse. Alone, It is your love that takes on an extra shift that works through vacation. It is your love that cleans and cooks and studies and goes over spelling words every single Thursday night. Every single Thursday night. It is your love that does this. A- a- and that is true of our relationship with the Lord. It is necessary for love. So, so if I could just leave the sermon for a minute and just be your brother in Christ. I don't want you to answer. This is a rhetorical question. Do you love the Lord? If you believe in him, that's wonderful. So does Satan. Do you love the Lord? And if you've ever gotten to a place where you get over what he's done for you, you need to stop and not focus on anything else and get on your knees and get in your word and get with the fellowship of the believers around you. And rewarm your heart to his love. One of the most powerful stories I've read in the last 10 years is Rosaria Butterfield. You may have read her story. It's a powerful one. She was an atheist, feminist, lesbian college professor. She was doing a research on Christians, and she sent a survey out to pastors asking a question about them. And one pastor wrote her the most kind letter in response. She said his truthfulness and love penetrated the words. So she looked him up. His name was Ken. His, wife named, his wife's name was Floyd, F-L-O-Y, unique name. Ken and Floyd Smith. Ken is a pastor in a Presbyterian church near her. So she reached out and Ken did something she was not ready for. Ken and his wife invited her to dinner. She went and braced herself. She knew. These were going to be nice Christian people. They were going to cook a nice meal. And at the end, they were going to ask her to receive Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior and invite her to church. She said, we went through the whole evening. She said, they treated me like a human. We just talked. And at the end... We got up, exchanged pleasantries, and she said, I braced myself. I was ready to tell them, no, I'm not going to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm not going to turn from my life that you believe is sin, and I'm not going to come to your church. She was ready, and they didn't invite her. They just said, we'd like to have you back for dinner sometime if you'd come. Later on, Ken would say he always wanted to invite people to Christ. He would be willing and ready to invite anybody to repent. But he knew he was in an environment where they were expecting him to invite them to church as a notch. And so he decided not to treat people as projects. So one dinner turned into two and two turned into three. Now she didn't know it, but Ken and Floyd started praying for her heart. God began working in her life. And without being invited, she showed up and began listening to Ken teach God's word. She came to Christ radically. She's now a pastor's wife in North Carolina. Her and her husband served Jesus because somebody loved her first. They loved her. Love is not compromise, but love is necessary. But then Paul does something pretty interesting. He switches from the necessity of love to the identity of love. What is love? The world tries to define it. Go to the Hallmark store. Spend some time. That may be where you buy cards. I hit up Dollar General. Same words. (laughs) You pay $7.50 for a card if you want to. (laughs) I can go to Dollar General, get some duct tape, some bleach, and a card, be done with it. Whatever you need that day, just go pick it up right there. So what we see in Scripture is this identity. Of love. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, I don't have time this morning. I wish I did. I could take you into every one of those words and we could take them apart and we could do a word study on them. It is a fascinating study. There have been whole books written on just 1 Corinthians 13. But I fear we may miss something if we just drill that deep and not bring it into the bigger context. Some people have argued that, that, that Paul wrote this later, and he just plugged it in here. It was just a poem that he wanted to put in. I actually would argue not that. I believe that Paul is choosing to address the aspects of love that he's not seeing in Corinth. Now, now, that list that I just read to you about not envious, not being boastful, not being irritable, not being resentful, not insisting on its own way, those do register on a surface level. And if you've read the book of 1 Corinthians with me, you'll know we've seen the exact opposite of this kind of behavior. Think about it in chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul says, for you are still of the flesh, for where while there is jealousy and strife among you, and you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. So Paul's saying there's jealousy and there's strife among you. In chapter 4, verse 18, you may remember a few weeks ago, some are arrogant as though I was not coming to you. Paul's saying you're walking around acting arrogant, not believing that I'm going to come and confront you as your pastor, and apostolic father in the faith. In chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, now concerning the food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, and he puts it in parentheses because he's quoting a quotation of the day in Corinth, but then he says, this knowledge puffs It's not the biblical knowledge. It's not being grounded in the faith. It's that self-knowledge that you think you have that makes you superior to others around you. You get trumped up and arrogant in what you think you know. And then what does he say? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If I love somebody and happen to know more than they do about any subject, what do I want? I want to share it with them. That's why I love teaching. Teaching is n- not proving to someone what you know. It's like preaching. I tell young pastors, the measure of your preaching is not for your people to leave your worship center or your congregation or your chapel or your church and go, whew, our pastor knows the Bible. That's not the measure of preaching. The measure of preaching is not much. how much the pastor knows. It's how much you know when he's done. It's the idea that you walk out with the knowledge that you need. So that kind of biblical knowledge is unlike the world's knowledge. It doesn't puff up the communicator. It builds up the congregation. And this is what Paul kept warning them about in 1 Corinthians. Just a few more examples in chapter 5, verse 1, when Paul deals with the sexual sin in Corinth, He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. You remember that series we did on dealing with sexual sin. They were rejoicing and tolerating that which is unrighteous. And then about the Lord's Supper over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the, the scripture says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, why would Paul say that? I don't know if you remember. Paul said that because for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Paul's saying, I hear that there's divisions and factions and that's obviously the case because that means some of you are walking with the Lord and some of you are not. And while that is something he's thankful for, in part, he can't be thankful for it in the whole. So you have a church that's being jealous and envious and resentful and insisting in its own way. It's rejoicing in falsehood and not truth. Now I see why Paul says these words in verse 4. And notice, there's not a single word about feeling in this whole passage. It's all about verbs. In fact, there are many verbs in these two sentences. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrong doing just a word of discernment church family about this we live in a day and age where many false churches are hanging rainbow flags all over the place in the name of love that's a direct contradiction to this verse the bible says true love does not rejoice in wrongdoing the love of god never ignores the holiness of god In fact, the most unloving thing you can do is compromise God's word and will to anybody. In fact, in the name of love, some are redefining God. But our God is love. Therefore, I don't have the right to redefine marriage, redefine gender, redefine society, or redefine love. Because God not only is the creator of all those things which are beautiful and powerful in their place, he is the one that has said the epitome of love is to love me and to do my will and to bring glory and honor to me. So be discerning when people come at you and say, well, I I don't believe that's very loving. Remember, lovingly, remember, they're just changing the definition of what love is. Love can never rejoice in wrongdoing. Love can love the wrongdoer. Love can love the world around you. But love cannot rejoice in that which is wrong, which is why it ends with love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. One pastoral exercise for you. Take this verse, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. Make a note about it. And over the next week, ask this personal questions of your own life. For example, uh, it bothers me that the Lord started with patience. <laughs> that cut me like a knife when I started exegeting this passage on Monday. I'm like, man, again, Lord, patience? In fact, in his effort to make me more patient, he's displaying his patient because he ought to be out of it. When we think about that, perhaps for you it's kindness. My favorite attribute of God when I study theology is his kindness. What about your envy or boasting? You know, envy is when you want what somebody else has, and boasting is when you want them to have what you have. But the root of those is self-love. You might take it a little bit further and look at the next passage. Love is not arrogant. He goes on to say, or rude. A Christian may have to be firm at times. But we should never be rude. In fact, when you study this word, there's actually a connotation of sexual overtone. It's almost like Paul is saying, crude. Think about the language and the entertainment we might not participate in, but we allow into our lives through our devices on a daily basis. In that moment, when you're laughing, or sharing, or commenting, or just consuming entertainment, that is filled with crudeness. Is that an act of loving God and loving that which is holy and pure? That's a very convicting thought for any of us, but it's edifying. And then, of course, you certainly need to ask the question, do you ever insist on your own way in a sinful way, irritable or resentful? There's nothing wrong with people saying this prayer, Lord, would you make me more loving? And identifying those attributes of love and then asking which ones are you naturally gifted at and praising him for it? Because some of you are. But then which ones are you struggling with in this season and drilling deeper to the source of that? I can tell you it is not as simple as just eliminating behavior. Pastor read a passage, I enjoyed the word, Yes, Lord, I'm not going to be irritable this week. That will not work. You have to ask, what is the root of me being irritable? What is the root of me insisting on my way? What is the root of my impatience? What is the root of my rudeness? When I envy or when I boast, what is the root? And when I, when I drill down at the heart of it, is it in that particular point in my life around that subject, Christ is not Lord. He's not ruling. I'm not submitting to his will. I'm not finding my joy and my happiness and my pleasure in him. If he is the greatest good, then my greatest good is to find my greatest pleasure in him. And as I pleasure in him, and as I found fulfillment in him... Then when my neighbor has wealth or success, I rejoice that God in his graciousness would give that to my neighbor. And when something happens in my life and I want to share it with someone, I check and ask, am I sharing this to bring glory and honor to God, to encourage someone? Or am I sharing this because I long for people to think my life is something theirs is not? There's an entire facade on social media that is nothing more than boasting. And so, as Christians, we have to ask the question, what is most loving in this moment? And not only has Paul done this in the identity of love, finally we get to the activity of love. What does love do? Look how it closes, I'll close where it closes in verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things things. This is what love does. One commentator defined it this way, Anthony uh, Thistleton. Love never tires of support, never loses faith, never exhausts hope, never gives up. I thought about my father when I studied this. I have a family member who is in rehab for the third time. He has destroyed a lot of relationships in our family, done a great deal of damage And yet my father has continually visited him and continually encouraged him. So much so that I found myself frustrated at times with my father because I'm a standards guy. This is the standard. The standard is the standard. You do what's right, there are great consequences. You do what's wrong, there are great consequences. You know that patience thing that the Lord is working on me about? This is where I am. And I'm all about grace and forgiveness, but grace and forgiveness must be met with repentance, remorse. So if there's no change in your behavior, I'm not going to trust you until you change. I don't have to hate you. I'm not going to hate you, but I'm not going to trust you. And there's a limit to what I can put into your life if you continue to hurt those around you. And there is biblical grounds for that. But my father is a more seasoned, more mature Christian, and I'm thankful for him, and he has a giftedness that I don't have for love and patience, and it challenges me, and it convicts me. And we were having a conversation just this week about this individual, and he said he made a comment about trying to help him in the future, and it, it just took me right to this passage. My father will not give up on this person. He will not give up on him. And then I think about all the precious people that I know today who are doing wonderful things for God because somebody would not give up on you. And this is what he's saying. In fact, if you want to look at the most powerful biblical example of this from the writer of the passage... You know, all the frustration that he has with the Corinthian believers and all the things that they've done wrong and all the dissension and all the backbiting and all the infighting and all the sexual sin they've tolerated and the abuse of the Lord's Supper and the twisting of the spiritual gifts, all the stuff that Corinth is eat up with. Yet how did he begin the letter? It's been so long since we began the letter. You won't remember, so I'll read it to you. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. This is Paul now. I give thanks to my God always for you, for by the grace of God, that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he starts off the letter saying, I'm so thankful for you. Now, i got to get all in your business, and i got to confront you over your sin, and i got to tell you that I'm frustrated, but I want to start and end with this. As long as there's breath in my lungs, I'm not giving up on you. As long as the sun come up, there's an opportunity for you to serve the Lord. As long as God gives me the ability to lead you, I'm going to let God lead me to lead you and love you. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love sustains and endures all things. I don't know if you're picking up on this, but there's something else about this passage that we can't miss. When you read 1 Corinthians and you think about the activity of love in chapter 13 specifically, you begin to recognize something. The world says love is a passion. Go find what you're passionate about. Or maybe love is a pursuit. Or, or love is a pattern of how you do things. Or love is a principle you live by. I want you to know for a Christian, listen, love is a person. Love is a person. Do you know what Paul said in Romans 5? Paul said these words, But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John said it this way in 1 John 4.10 in this is love not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins when I look to love I'm not chasing an idea I'm not looking at a list of principles do's and don'ts I look to a person Now, I would never, ever, ever want you to think that we would manipulate the Word of God, but the Bible says God is love, and we know that Jesus is God. You know that passage we just went through, verse by verse, verses 1 down to verse 7? Can I change it up just a little bit? Would you read it with me? I'm going to read it out loud. You read it silently. Look on the screen. It goes like this. If I speak in tongue of men and angels but have not Jesus, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not Jesus, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver my, my body up to be burned but have not Jesus, I gain nothing. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. And by God's blessed grace, Jesus endured all things. Jesus is love. This is why the New Testament continues to ground in our hearts these truths. It's why the Scripture would teach us this over and over again in places like 1 John. So we have come to know, to believe that the love of God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in his love abides in God, and God abides in us. I like how Paul prays over the Ephesian believers. Paul says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of what? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I want to ask you a question this morning. Is that the most excellent way of your existence? Are you living the more excellent way? Is the love of God the aroma of your life? I thought about this recently. I was in a group of leaders and we were asked to write our headstone. (laughs) Now, obviously, I knew the first date. And I could put the dash. I I don't know the second date. But what did you want written on your headstone? My mother's hilarious. She often said, I want y'all to put on my headstone, in quotation, I told you I was sick. (laughs) I thought a lot about that. And honestly, this sounds weird. It wasn't the first time I thought about it. I thought about that. Kind of like that whole idea of living with the end in mind. Can you think of any better commentary than these words? Your name, date of birth, the date you were called home, the personal pronoun that matches you, be he or she. You didn't pick your pronouns, by the way. She loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. When we looked at her marriage, we saw the love of God. When we watched him with his children, we saw the love of God. When he went to work on a rainy Monday and everybody's in a bad mood, he displayed the love of God. When he laughed with so much joy, we felt the love of God. When he wept with me, I felt the love of God. When she dealt with failures and defeat, the grace with which she handled it showed the love of God. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. that He would give us His Son. I want to open the altar this morning. I feel like your hearts need to be warmed by the love of God. I've asked our team to sing a simple chorus, a beautiful hymn that celebrates the vastness and the greatness of the love of God. As we sing that, if you want to come and kneel where you are, kneel here at the altar or stay seated where you are. If you want to stand and sing with us, we just want you to have the freedom to respond. If you'd like prayer, there are people here who would pray with you. Maybe you just want to come and kneel and say, Lord, I want to pause today and tell you how much I love you. Others of you may say, Lord, my heart's been cold for a few months, and I need to be warmed by your love again. Maybe there's something in your life that's affecting your love for the Lord. Friend, there's nothing more loving than repenting, turning from sin and saying, it is your love and grace that have won my heart. Not your judgment, not your wrath, but your love, Lord. And I need your grace in my life. Would you forgive me and give me the strength to walk in the newness of life you promised? I don't know. I could go on and on listing scenarios, but that would be manipulative. I just want you to respond to his